Okay, my dear friends, good morning. We're very honored to have with us Rabbi Davidovich, the Rav of the Heights Jewish Center, a prolific scholar of all areas of Torah, including Torah Sachsidis. And uh, he has prepared over uh, many months a summary of Sefer Atanya, Sefer Shalbeinanim, Lukoti Amarim. And he's kind enough to share that summary with us. It's very lucid, it's very clear, it's a great tool, and we're very honored that you joined us. Ladies and gentlemen, Rabbi Davidovich. Thank you, Rabbi Friedman. Thank you, everyone, for attending. I shared with Rabbi Friedman a few years ago an insight that came to me before Rabbi Shays Tau came out with his Tanya map, which is that the Sefer Tanya is a Sefer that while I think most Hasidim learn it in the Chitas format, where you can learn a, par a paragraph or a page or two a day, that there's another way of learning it, which provided me with a lot of insight, and I'll share it with you. The insight that I learned from it in from this way of learning is that Tanya can be learned besides for Chitas on two other levels. One level is that every chapter, every parak of Tanya has a very distinct theme. The Baal Tanya divided his work into chapters, and that wasn't just to make it easy to learn, but meaning in the sense that one could learn it, oh, I'm done with the chapter for the day, but rather that each chapter has a very distinct theme. And the second way to learn it is that the themes really uh, of each chapter gather and build to create a larger theme. And I found that Sefer Tanya, besides for having the well-known 53 prakim, 53 chapters, the Sefer Shalbanonim has 53 chapters, it can also be seen in a way that it is comprised of four or maybe five parts. The first part of Tanya is the first 17 prakim, the first 17 chapters of Tanya. And sometimes when I'm looking just for a certain kind of limited inspiration where I don't try to bite off more than I can chew, I realize that these 17 prakim, these 17 chapters, when viewed as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, when viewed as its own entity, provide a tremendous amount of insight. I coupled this with an insight that I would like to share with you. I'm sure you've heard at some point, but when I realized this, it provided me with a tremendous amount of sipuk, of satisfaction. And that is that the Balatanya tells us right away in the cover page what his sefer is about. So I'll now jump in to explaining the first 17 chapters with the insight provided by the first chapter. The Baltanya writes that this is a Sefer that is called Sefer Shel Benonim. And he explains, what is this book here to do? So he says it's built on a Pasuk, meaning the entire Sefer, all 53 chapters of this Sefer, are built on a foundation, miyusad, of the Pasuk, Kikarov Elecha Hadavar Me'od, this matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And then the Baltanya says he is going to explain well how is this davar, this thing, 
whether the thing he means is teshuva or whether he means kol haTorah kula, the observance of the whole Torah. How is it very easy? He can explain it briefly, or he can explain it at length. And the first 17 chapters are laid out quite clearly. And if you take a look, I'll give away the ending right now. If you just want to hear the ending, spoiler alert, I think that you can understand exactly how this is structured, because I'm jumping now ahead to the beginning of Perak Yur Zion, which is Chof Beis Amad Beis, if you want to look it up, page 44. He writes, Ubozeh, and with this, and by this, I believe the Balatanya means the, all the first 16 chapters. Yuvan it will be understood. Masha Kosov, Kikarov Elecha, Dover Ma'od, the Ficha will Vavchala so so. So he's giving away the whole thing. He's making it abundantly clear that he just spent these first 16 chapters explaining what he said he was at the on the cover page that he was setting out to do. So now with that introduction, I'll explain step by step, meaning chapter by chapter, what is the Baal is trying to do. He's obviously dealing with a an understanding that some people had. Maybe they had it because of personal experience. Maybe they had it because they saw certain statements made by Chazal, by our rabbis, that made them feel a certain way. The Baltanya was experiencing from the people, from people approaching him, as he writes in his introduction, that people found the Torah not karov me'od. They felt that the Torah was not easily accessible. So in order to explain how it is accessible, he spends the first uh, nine chapters giving a summary of what the anatomy of a Jewish soul is, breaking down the entire anatomy. And when you understand the anatomy, he then spends the three chapters after that explaining how different people deal and use that anatomy, and then provides insight and advice in the next five chapter, four or five chapters to explain different ways that he guides people on how to use that anatomy that he explained in the first nine chapters to, for maximum benefit. So this is how he starts. He starts off by explaining the tension. What do I mean by tension? Well, the tension is built in to a brysa. And with this, he will explain the title of his book, that this book is called Sefer Shel Benonim. Benonim is that state in between being a tzaddik and being a Russia. So he starts with chapter one. Chapter one deals by introducing us to three people, three names rather, three titles, tzaddik, Russia, and Benoni. And then he tells us what has become a favorite phrase in Chabad Yeshivas, from what Rabbi Friedman has told me, and many people have been in the Tomchei Tmim in Yeshivas, or her learned Hasidus with Rabbi Yol Khan, that the phrase in Yiddish goes esvensich, which means when you use terms, it all depends on the context in which you are using the terms. So Tanya starts by quoting a Gemara, saying that every Jew before birth, 
is told to take an oath where he's told to be a tzaddik, not to be a Russia, but to think that he's a Russia, even though people tell him he's a tzaddik. And this can be confusing and it can be disconcerting, he explains, because if you think you're a Russia, then you're going to get despondent and you're going to get depressed. If you're going to think, if you're going to believe that you're a tzaddik, then you're going to become complacent and you're not going to take life seriously because you think you have already made it. So what is a tzaddik? What is a Russia? What is a Benini? So he spends chapter one telling us that it all depends the context in which it's used. Sometimes a tzaddik just means somebody who has successfully, you know, managed to live another year. Just like sometimes a tzaddik means a tzaddik in Bastin means someone who's won a court case. But the Baltanya says he's not going to use every definition of tzaddik in Russian Benoni. He is going to be developing based on one of the Maimari Chazal that he quoted, that a tzaddik and a Russia and a Benoni have distinct meanings. And he's going to be, and he's telling us in chapter one, this is what it means. And then he begins in chapter one to lay out the anatomy. He says, the anatomy starts with who you are as a human being, that basically you're an animal. So it's, you start out with your Nefesh Bahamas. You're an animal with drives like all other animals. Sometimes those drives are good. Sometimes those drives are altruistic, but you are built in with these, this Nefesh Bahamas drive, which can be subdivided into four drives that um, Chazal use uh, using the imagery of fire, air, earth, uh, water, and earth. But that's all the basic composition of the Nefesh Bahamas. Start with your animal soul. Perak Bey says, now let's delve a little more into the anatomy. You are not only an animal soul, which every human being is essentially an animal. You have a Nefesh Hashanis, you have a second soul, and that soul is part of it is a part of God above. And this part of God above is permeates your entire self, just like a father's contribution to his child, even though the father's contribution begins in his brain, the child is a manifestation of his father's reality, even down to the toenail. So now with chapter one and chapter two, we understand the idea, the basic anatomy before he gets into more detail is, and to understand the struggle, which he will bring up later, is that you have a Nefesh Elokis and you have a Nefesh Bahamas. Although he explains it in reverse order. He starts by telling you're an animal and then he goes to tell you you are also a part of God. Now he breaks down, if you zoom in a little more, Perak Gimel tells us that he starts going into some of the details of the Nefesh Elokis. So the Nefesh Elokis is comprised of 10 parts or manifests itself in 10 ways. And those 10 parts can be divided in a different way, the top three and the bottom seven, where the top three is what we would call mochin, moach, meaning intellectual properties of chachma, bina, and das, which is how a person intellectually processes the world, even either by seeing the world as a whole, meaning through as a burst of inspiration, or un, which is Chachma, breaking things down, understanding, intuiting things step by step, which is Bina, and the ability to combine the two so that things are not only a matter of intellectual appreciation, but you develop convictions, 
and that is the koach of da'as. These three comprise the intellectual process of a human being, but they are the intellectual process of the nefesh elokis as well. Das means contemplating, and das, when you have a conviction, this leads to ahava and to yira. Ava and yira are the emotional consequences of a conviction that you have developed. Your conviction either leads you to want to be close to something or to feel a distance from something. To be close to it is ava, to want to maintain a respectful distance is yira. And this is what the seven emotional midos, the Baltanya here in chapter three says, I'm, he's not going to bother us with all seven. It's enough to just know that it, it's these two halves, either ahava or yira. Now, the Baltanya has laid out that there is a nefesh elokis. He tells us this nefesh elokis has these 10 parts, or if you want, as he, do, he wants, think of it as two parts, intellectual and emotional, emotional also two parts. We still have not reached a person actually doing anything yet. He has described the inner anatomy that doesn't actually express itself outward in any way, which is why he then leads us in to Perik Dalet. Perik Dalet tells us that a neshama has three, this nefesh kiss, which he's focusing on now, has three levushin, three garments. The way I'd like to translate this in words that make sense in English is three modes of expression. Because after all, if you think about it, a garment actually expresses what a person is, or like tikkunin, jewelry, express what a person is. I like to think of it that we wear clothing for two reasons. We wear clothing to protect us from the elements, and we wear clothing to express who we are, what our goals are, what our aspirations of life are expressed in our garments. So Hashem provided the nefesh elokis with three modes of expression, and they are known as machshava, dibur, and maisa. And this chapter sets up the theme that the Baltanya began to express on the cover page. Make no mistake, the cover page is as essential a part of Tanya as any other line in Tanya. <clears throat> so now with Mahshava Dibur Maisa, a person expresses his Nishama, Nefesh al Kis, through Mahshava and Dibur Maisa of the 613 mitzvahs. And by doing this, he is enclosed in the Taryag mitzvos, in these 613 mitzvos. This is done through machshava, by thinking the things that the Torah wants us to think, like thinking about Torah. Dibur and Maisa obviously involved, Dibur means speech, all the various mitzvos that are accomplished by speaking out loud, by saying things. And Maisa is somewhat obvious, the things that we do, actions that we perform or actions that we do not perform, all of this is, all of these things, this machshava, thought, speech, and deed, are how God, who is inherently ungraspable, can be grasped. And the Baal Tanya wants us to know, as he moves into chapter 5, that thinking about Torah, by which he means thinking and not speaking it, not doing it, merely the power of thinking about Torah, Ends is actually more profound than a mere garment because thinking about Torah is, is something that it happens on the inside. So when a Jew thinks about Torah, it is not merely a garment, 
But thinking about Torah is like food for the soul. A person needs food and a person needs clothing, obviously. She'er and ksus. We need mizonos and we need ksus. We need to be protected. We need to express ourselves. So taryag mitzvos are wonderful in that they provide the outer expressions of our neshama. Torah is impacted by the way that we think of the way that food sustains a soul. So here the Baal has spent chapters three and four and five telling us what the nefesh elokis is and how it operates. It operates through its ten midos, which are derived from Hashem's ten spheros, and it is expressed through the three garments of Machshava, Dibur, and Maisa, and the food, if you will, of Torah. In Perik Vav, the Balatanya says, now let me tell you how the Nefesh of Bahamas works, the animal soul. The animal soul works pretty much as a mirror image of the godly soul, except instead of thinking about how Chachma and Bina and Das and the Midos of Ahava and Yira, loving and fearing God, are expressed divinely, when it comes to the Nefesh Habahamis, what happens is that that soul, that part of our identity, thinks of what to do and how to live the way an animal lives, by the way, which is a very important idea, that we should think of it the way an animal lives and not just think of it as something that in English is translated usually as evil. Because the evil that the Balatanya talks, he makes clear in chapter six, is not like the evil of some genocidal maniac. It is the evil of someone who only wants to think about himself and not think altruistically and not think about God. This is an emphasis the Balatanya here says in Paragvav in chapter six. This is why he advances the rather radical notion, if you think of Ra or Nefesh Bahamas as being evil, that anything that is not Lashem Shamayim, Anything that is not for the sake of heaven is bad. Now, what does bad mean here? If you're just eating something, but you don't think L'Shem Shemayim, then obviously it isn't like a genocidal, you know, dictator, but it means you are not thinking of Hashem. These levels then continue in Perik Zion, where he says that really a Jewish perspective on this, on this Nefesh of Bahamas is what is referred to as Klipas Noga. And this, he's using the term Klipa, which he began to express in Paragvav, that Klipa means a shell. And just like a shell conceals the fruit that is on the inside, so too the shell, meaning three levels of distance in which we are distanced from Hashem. But even when a Jew does something that is maybe distant from Hashem or he doesn't think of Hashem, it is referred to as a clear shell, which is really the topic of Perik Zion. And this is known in Hebrew, in language of Hasidus, Kabbalah, as klipas noga, a clear shell, which means it can be kosher, just not l'shem shamayim, as opposed to the harder shells that are known in this work as gimel klipas atmeos, three levels of distance from Hashem, where they are not only not l'shem shamayim, but something that is actually uh, forbidden. Perik Ches says that, almost as an aside, that to rectify the damage done by doing the wrong thing, you have to do teshuva. But when it comes to rectifying the damage done by merely not doing something l'shem shemayim, 
then it does not require as difficult of a process as, as teshuva. So now this is the anatomy. So just to wrap up this section, chapters one through eight, the Balatanya spent on describing that a person should be a tzaddik, but not a rasha, think himself as a rasha, but not a tzaddik. And then told us that there is an anatomy of Nefesh Elikis and Nefesh Bahamis, the, uh, um, the godly soul and the animal soul. And now he begins to tell us in Perak Tess how the, these two neshamos interact with one another. He tells us now in chapter nine that the Nefesh Elikis, the godly souls, headquarters in the human experience are in the mind, the moach. And the Nefesh Bahamis's headquarters are in the part, a part of the heart. And that these two souls are constantly at war, even though, and I think this is important because I know I got very confused when I first became aware of this chapter. The, the Balatanya described very clearly in Paragimel that the Nefesh Elokis is comprised both of mind and heart. The Nefesh Bahamis is also comprised of heart and mind. So they include both. But if you want to know the main headquarters of Nefesh Elokis, it's in thinking clearly, coldly, intellectually about something. And the Nefesh Bahamis has as its main headquarters thinking emotionally about matters. And then these two sides fight. And now we get to Perik Yud. He tells us about the, 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 the great winner of this fight is known as a tzaddik. You have a tzaddik gomor or an a tzaddik she'eno gomor. A tzaddik gomor is someone who has, whose nefesh elokis has simply defeated the nefesh Bahamis in that everything that a tzaddik does is altruistic and is for the sake of Hashem. And the nefesh Bahamis has no role no role whatsoever. Think about an election in which a party has won 100% of the seats in Congress or Parliament. That utter and total victory is the what the victor is described as a tzaddik. A Russia is described in Perak Yud Aleph, chapter 11. Whether a complete Russia or not a complete Russia, the idea here is that the, that the Russia is the person whose Nefesh Bahamis still maintains occasional control. It doesn't have to be, again, total control. He makes this very clear, and what a person could think as being very frightening. He is not totally taking over. We're not talking, again, about a genocidal maniac, dictator. We are talking about someone whose Nefesh Bahamis occasionally has won a vote on any given day whether in Machshava or Dibur or Misa. And the Tzaddik and the Russia are obviously at the extremes, which then leads us to Perakut Bays, chapter 12, in which he begins to describe the Benoni. The Benoni is someone who fights the war and wins every battle. What does it mean that he wins the battle? So the Baltanya takes us back to chapter 4. He says... What does it mean to win every battle? It means utter control over the machshava, dibur, and maisa. Does it mean that you have won all the votes in parliament? No, but it means you control the police, you control the army, you control every external expression so that a Bainani's life 
to the outsider looks the same as the life of a tzaddik because he is do, always doing the right thing and he is never doing the wrong thing. But what you don't realize is that every moment internally, he is at war. You know, just as an aside, I think of the way that when the American army was in Afghanistan for 20 years, and they managed after a short time to control the army of Afghanistan and control the government of Afghanistan for all the years that the army was there. And yet we saw last year it was a rather shocking thing that literally the moment the American armed forces left without so much as like a of a break, all of the bad guys that had been in charge before 9-11 were in charge again. And to me, this is like the, the imagery of the Benoni. Every day is a battle. The fact that every day is a battle means that on the outside, it looks like you're winning, so you're at Sadiq. But on the inside, you know that you are constantly fighting the battle the way Russia should really fight that battle. And therefore, in Parakut Gimel, we're now taken to chapter 13. The Balatanya wraps up by answering the questions that he brought up in the chapter one. So chapter 13, in a way, wraps up is in a certain way of thinking about it, the wrap up of the previous 12 chapters. And he so this is how he answers all the questions from chapter one. He's saying the Benoni on the one hand is a tzaddik, meaning he's always doing the right thing. On the other hand, the Nefesh Bahamis is still there trying to advise and trying to tell him what to do. And as a result, he should see himself as being a Russia. This concludes the first 13 chapters of the Sefer Shel Benonim. He has explained what it is to be a Benonim. Now, in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, the Valtanya gives advice on how to actually be a Benonim, meaning what it is that has to be done. And here he emphasizes the idea that it is accessible. Because after explaining the title of the book, Sefer Shel Benonim, he now jumps into chapter 14 to explain how it is Karov Me'od. And this is, in fact, how he begins chapter 14, really sending us back to the cover page in a very uh, obvious way. He says, midas midas kol adam. This is Now, if something is the way that everyone can be, then that means it's Karov Me'od, right? It's as Karov, it's as accessible as anything else that is simply a part of who you are. As long as you realize that you have to live a life of battling, of struggle. Because a tzaddik, in the language of the Balatanya, and you have to be careful, because when the Balatanya uses the word tzaddik, it is not like the way that any other Talmud Chacham or any other Shashiva before or after, unless they're influenced by the Sefer Tanya, would use the word tzaddik. Because by now you should realize that what the Balatanya calls a Benoni is what every non-Hasidic work in the world calls a tzaddik. So now he's saying, this is something now in chapter 14, Perak Yudalet, as long as you realize you have to fight and that you are not a tzaddik, meaning the fight is not over, right? The Americans don't have to fight the British for control of the US anymore. The British left long time ago. And this is in effect what we're saying over here. A tzaddik is someone who's Nefesh Bahamis, stopped bothering him long ago, if it, ever, if it ever bothered him. A tzaddik in the way described by the Baal Tanya is a gift 
and is not simply a matter of something that is deserved. But he says here in Perak Yudal something that I used to overlook, and sometimes I look up again just to be satisfied and to, to get a jump start in my own Avodas Hashem, which he says, you know what? Every so often, try to pretend you're a tzaddik, meaning aspire to that level. Are you really going to succeed? Nah, probably not. But you know what? It becomes what he calls tevasheni, which is interesting in that in English we use that term, second nature. Perek Tezvav, he says, a bainani should always be working. And if he is not always working, then maybe you're called a bainani, but you cannot be called an Oved Elokim, someone who serves God, because the struggle always has to exist, always trying to climb yet another step and yet another step and yet another step. And then in Perek Zion in chapter 16, the Balatanya says, listen, the bainani you might not be able, you might not be impressed because if you look at a Bainani, he might not have that excitement, that passion that someone we would, sometimes we would imagine someone who's a tzaddik should have. You know what I mean, if you've ever seen it, someone who's davening and either they're crying or they're clapping or even if they're not doing either of those things, but they're shuckling or somehow you see an expression, you see something on their face or sometimes the Bainani might be thinking about himself in this way and saying, you know what? I'm doing all the right things, but I don't feel that, that excitement. So the Baltanya lets us know that sometimes the Bainani won't have that outward expression of emotional excitement of Ava and Yira. And that's okay. And why is that okay? Because, and this is an important idea the Baltanya will treat later, Ava and Yira can either be in a state of exu being exuded or they can be in an internal state. And as long as a Jew is involved in the intellectual appreciation that generates Ahava and Yira, that sometimes will be enough. And then Baltanya concludes here in chapter 17 by again, wrapping it all up. He's saying the Pasuk of Kikarov Elecha Hadavar Me'od is now explained. And this was his goal all along. What is Karov Me'od? Not to be a tzaddik. To be a tzaddik is not karov ma'od. That is a divine gift. But what is karov ma'od accessible is to be able to control what you think, actively think, what you speak, and what you do. Now, obviously, I'll conclude by saying, I think we all know, all of us non-tzaddikim in the world, know that it is not so easy to control what you think, speak, and do. But karav me'od does not mean easy. It means it is near to you. It is accessible. And as long as a Jew has an idea, which the Baal calls shivron lev, to be brokenhearted, which means not crying, but realizing that you're incomplete, then it's something you can strive for, and you don't have to feel like you have to be perfect in order to access. And that is the definition of a benani, and that is his explanation of why being a Benoni is Karav Ma'od. And this concludes what I call part one of Sefer Shil Benoni. All right, Rabbi Freeman, you said I couldn't do it in half an hour. Thank you very much, Rabbi Davidovich. Thank you everyone for joining. This was a beautiful recap, very, very useful. We're gonna review it many, many times.
Thank you. We'll see you all next week in Mitzvah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.